This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Packman Show, The Onion Radio News, The Young Turks, Citizen Radio, The Tom Hartman Program, Jim Hightower, and Comedian Lee Camp. And a note to our more sensitive listeners, it is not recommended for you to listen to this episode within 24 hours of eating a meal. Let's talk about this petition. A bunch of people have sent this to me. The U.S. dairy industry is petitioning the FDA to approve aspartame as a hidden, unlabeled additive in milk, yogurt, eggnog, and cream. So this is the International Dairy Foods Association and the National Milk Producers Federation. They filed a petition with the FDA saying, let's change the definition of milk to include chemical sweeteners like aspartame and sucralose without having to list them on the label. They can just be swept under the, d- the definition of what milk is so that a company could say on the label, this is milk, and it could include aspartame or sucralose without saying contains artificial sweeteners, without listing them, so on and so forth. If you're trying to avoid aspartame, you would, of course, have no way of doing so because it's not listed on the label unless presumably there will be some watchdog group that now, will test. Yeah, no, I just want to get something clear because it's not clear to me and it's probably not clear to some of our audience members. So is this that it's not going to be labeled even in the ingredients or is this only that they're lobbying so that they can say milk on the front but then still on the back under nutrition facts it'll say in the ingredients that it has it. So which of these is it? My understanding is that this is that the the FDA's definition of milk as an ingredient, so when you look at ingredients, milk, can include, without separating out, aspartame and sucralose. That's my understanding. And I've, I've, I spent, I don't know, it must be a half hour today looking through uh, a number of articles about this. Is that your understanding, Louis? Right. It will still be called milk. The ingredients will just say milk, but it will have these added things. So Natan's making a good question, though, which is, it might still say milk aspartame on the back, but the front could say this is milk and there wouldn't have to be a little additional notation saying right. contains sweetened, sweetened milk or something. My understanding is that it is the former, what we're talking about, that it, the ingredients will just say milk and that can include aspartame. Right. That's what I believe it is. Okay. So two issues on this. Number one is the issue of is, is aspartame harmful, right? So, well, let's see. Uh, what does aspartame.org say? Aspartame.org says it's been found safe in more than 200 scientific studies. It's a great way to reduce calories in food, blah, blah, blah. Well, where did that website come from? The website is maintained by the Calorie Control Council. Who is the Calorie Control Council? It's a nonprofit group that represents the low-calorie and reduced-fat food and beverage industry. It represents 60 manufacturers of these types of foods. So this is a lobbying group, right? So right away, when we look at aspartame.org, I don't trust that website. I just don't think it's it's the equivalent of the NRA to guns. It's, it's that for uh, companies that make products with things like aspartame and sucralose in them. Right. So that's not really good. So we looked at some more data. There are accusations that the original approval process of aspartame as a food additive in uh, 1974 by the FDA was controversial, that the research was flawed, that there were conflicts of interest, so on and so forth. However, I'm open to more information. I've not been able to find uh, any kind of academic, what I would consider peer, not necessarily peer-reviewed, but some kind of academic science-based 
confirmation that there are links between aspartame and cancer and other conditions. That being said, I don't disagree that there, there may be health risk to aspartame, but putting that aside, if there's aspartame in milk, it should not just be labeled as milk. That, regardless of the consequences, regardless of cancer.org saying there has been no specific link between aspartame and cancer, I don't agree with the labeling. Right. As we know, the FDA is basically headed by uh, members of formerly of the different food lobbies. And if this were to, to happen, it would be another huge travesty in the long list of um, huge F-ups the FDA has uh, has been a part of. No question about it. Natan, do you agree that regardless of whether aspartame is harmful or not to one's health, you should know if the milk you're buying is milk or if it's milk with artific artificial sweeteners? Yeah, I 100% agree that it should be listed in the ingredients. That's That goes without saying. Now, whether it should be on the front of the container listed in big letters as something different than milk, I'm not completely positive, only because I think we could come up with a number of other products where it doesn't say that it's not peanut butter, you know, whatever spread. I'm sure we could come up with other examples where it has artificial sweeteners in it or, or products in it, and it doesn't change the basic name of the product, but it 100% should be in the ingredients. Absolutely. All-natural food preservative causes all-natural cancer. It's the Onion Radio News. I'm Doyle Redland. The Food and Drug Administration announced today that Friculan D, a natural food preservative made from processed seaweed roots, causes a rare but healthy terminal carcinoma. FDA spokesman Charles Lapodia has more. This is a hearty, natural cancer caused by exposure to the chemical-free preservatives in soy milk, wheat-free garden burgers, and a variety of other all-natural products. Doctors say Friculan D kills 100% organically. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News online. The plant it grow for nourishment to fulfill my need. We can't complain about it because it comes from a seed. Wind go down my throat and so therefore I breathe We can't complain about it cause it come from a sea Volcano make a mountain that come up from the ground Consumer Reports did a study on ground turkey and they found that the majority of ground turkey that's sold uh, in our stores contains fecal matter when? Now, the okay. study looked at 257 retail stores, or retail samples, I should say, from 21 states and 27 different brands. And they found out that 90% of the ground turkey actually included at least one of five um, uh, bacteria that causes foodborne illnesses. Okay, and plus, it turns out it wasn't turkey, it was horse meat. <laughs> like, well, it seems like every story we do, oh, by the way, the shrimp like lives in crap. The tur 90 percent of the turkeys in crap, and they're all horse meat, and it's so frustrating. 
Of course, the national, I love this, the National Turkey Federation. <laughs> How is that not a funny federation? We're the federation watching out for national turkeys. Okay, the National Turkey Federation says that this report is, quote, alarmist. Yeah, if 90% of the turkey has shit in it, I'm alarmed. Okay, and then they say, and I love this too, the two most prevalent ones, the ones starting with E that I can't pronounce, uh, are not consi uh, considered a source of full uh, foodborne illness. Yeah. Thereby meaning like, yeah, it's shit, but you can eat that shit. Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, the, the bacteria you're referring to is E. coli and staphyl staphylococcus. Uh, See what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Which is a strange name for bacteria, but whatever. Um, no, but I think what's happening with our food is very similar to what's happening to our education, right? So if you look at Louisiana, for instance, the government is taking money out of public schools and then they're putting it into private vouchers so they can encourage uh, parents to go into private schools instead and they'll get rid of the public schools. But what they do in the meantime is they point to those public schools and they say, failure, failure, failure. They're doing the same thing with the FDA. The FDA is experiencing budget cuts, right? And as a result, they can't do uh, the same type of inspection that they should be doing, right? They can't inspect everything as efficiently. As a result, the Republicans will turn around and say, look at that, the FDA. Is it really looking out for us? It looks like they're failing. You see that? The government's not working. Yet yeah, the government doesn't work if you don't fund it. I mean, it's what they did in Camden and Newark. They defunded the police. They cut the police force dramatically. And guess what happened? Murder and crime went up. Because it turns out if there's no cops on the street, people are more likely to commit crime. Of course, of course. Now, this is in ground turkey, not in all turkey. Right. But there's a second problem, too, uh, which is uh, different strains that are resistant to antibiotics. So not only is there crap in the food, but it's also resistant to antibiotics. And then that's a whole different set of problems. My God, we need the FDA. We need them properly funded. And by the way, the other part of it is if they actually do their job and they crack down on these different industries, the industries howl to the wind and more importantly to the politicians they bought. And the politicians go, how dare you? No, you're... you're Try to regulate the free market, and we can't have that. Yeah, so let me jump in on that point, because one thing that the FDA has done in the past, and I think they are currently doing as well, uh, is they are depending on uh, the food industry to self-regulate. Okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so luck. I don't want to put the, uh, you know, I don't want to let the FDA off the hook. Self-regulation is a disastrous idea. I know that there are libertarians and conservatives that think, no, 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 it could work. In a truly free market, it could work. It's not working. They're not going to self-regulate. They're going to cut corners. They're not going to care about health and safety. They're going to care about profit. There's a profit motive here. And if it means uh, you know, doing less testing to save money, that's what will happen. Here's what happens in self-regulation. The turkey companies are like, oh, you're going to let me just regulate myself and I could save money by putting crap in the thing and not bothering cleaning it up? Okay, great, great. Here's a ground turkey. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Here you go. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. It's self regulated. Go ahead and eat it. Go ahead and eat it. And libertarians are like, oh, oh, it's delicious.
This program can only do what it does because of the members who support the show for as little as $5 a month. And as thanks for the support, members now get access to bonus content, including additional voicemails and clips that didn't fit in the big show, and additional stories and discussion topics for me. Plus, I've organized a full archive of the show, including a curated selection of my favorite past episodes, as well as a collection of my absolute favorite radio clips from all sorts of places. All that now available only to members. If you're already a member and want access to all this great content, drop me an email at j at bestoftheleft.com so I can get you set up. And if you're not yet a member, you can sign up now at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. So, there was a article uh, in Mother Jones about the... uh, Seven dodgy food practices that are banned in Europe, but they're just fine in America. Oh, God. Um, so, yeah, I usually, I don't like, you know, list articles, but I think this is cause for concern. Um, so, number one is atrazine. So, why it's a problem. <laughs> I knew uh, it was a problem the second you said that word. <laughs> it's a potent endocrine disruptor. Uh, Sagenta's popular corn herbicide has been linked to uh, a range of reproductive problems at extremely low doses in both amphibians and humans, and it commonly leaches out of farm fields and into people's drinking water. So Europe banned it in 2003, but its status in the U.S., according to the EPA, is atrazine will begin registration review EPA's periodic reevaluation program for existing pesticides in mid 2013. So it's just coming up for review uh, in the middle of this year. Jesus. I would um, just a quick little health fun fact that I like because this reminded me of that. Um, if you are trying to get healthy, uh, which you should, a really good. Um, I have a lot of problems with Michael Pollan, but two really nice uh, kind of like easy to remember rules that I really like that he said um, are the first one is there shouldn't be any ingredients in your food that you can't pronounce. Like when you start to see weird stuff that looks like that, what Ali was just talking about, you probably don't want it. Um, you know, high fructose corn syrup, obviously you don't want, but when there's like, you know, 50 ingredients well, and you're is, buying a cracker. Well, remember this is herbicide. So this is just what's sprayed on. The oh, pot. I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm just saying. But unfortunately that's actually really interesting because it would be cool if on food labels, they also included like, here's what herbicides were used in the production of these crops. But right. like, you have no idea. Right. Exactly. Um, Cause what Michael Pollan always says is he's like, you know, eat whole foods, but what, like he doesn't, maybe he does talk about this and I'm just not familiar with it, is even whole foods are treated with these kind of herbicides. Yeah, he does. And I mean, that's obviously why it's weird. I actually feel more uh, comfortable telling people to go vegan than I do organic because organic is legitimately expensive. You can go vegan. And it also has a very loose definition, like what qualifies as organic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can go vegan on the cheap. Like I went vegan when I was living out of uh, a car with Allison. Um, For sure. Organic definitely does, you know, it it definitely is more expensive. If you can afford it, it's obviously good because you can avoid shit like this. But, you know, this article aside, like new point, um, there should not be 50 ingredients in a cracker. It should be like cracker. 
Um, so that's always a good thing. You want it to be as little ingredients as in pot. Like bread's a really good example. Like if you look at Wonder Bread, you're like, what the fuck is all this stuff? Well, it's funny. Like rats won't eat Wonder Bread. Right. Um, because they know there's no nutrients in it. But if you get good bread that you have to put in the freezer or the fridge or else it'll get moldy, it should be like some form of wheat, maybe a little sea salt. Some kind of yeast, yeah. and that's it. So, number two, arsenic in chicken, turkey, and pig feed. Ugh. Why it's a problem. Arsenic is beloved of industrial-scale livestock producers because it makes animals grow faster and turns their meat a rosy pink. It enters feed in organic form, which isn't harmful to humans. Trouble is, in animal guts, it quickly goes inorganic and thus becomes poisonous. Several studies, including one by the FDA, have found heightened levels of inorganic arsenic in supermarket chicken, and it also ends up in manure, where it can move into tap water. Fertilizing rice fields with arsenic-laced manure may be partially responsible for heightened arsenic levels in U.S. rice. Yeah. So what Europe did was, according to the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, arsenic-based compounds were never approved as safe for animal feed in the European Union, Japan, and many other countries. But the U.S. status... The drug giant Pfizer voluntarily oh. stopped marketing the arsenical feed additive... Uh, Roxerstone back in 2011, but there are still several arsenicals on the market. On May 1st, a coalition of enviro, enviro groups, including the Center for Food Safety, the Institute for Agricultural and Trade Policy, and the Center for Biological Diversity, filed a lawsuit demanding that the FDA ban them from feed. Not to throw on my vegan propaganda again. <laughs> But if you're reading Oh, that's a, all I was thinking when I was reading this article. I know. If you're like reading something and and it's blank maybe in your chicken guts, at what point are you like, maybe I don't need the chicken guts? But here's what pisses me off about articles like this. It's not limited to like meat and stuff. It's like the fucked up things the meat industry does trickles over. down to my fucking rice. I know. And like whenever there's a salmonella outbreak and they're like, it's on the spinach. Invariably, it's because there was a fucking pig farm up the fucking road. That's, that's literally the, the last big scare is the cow shit went downhill and got on my fucking spinach. <laughs> and it's like, Jesus Christ. I know. I'm like, I'm vegan. I shouldn't be getting ill because you have... you can't put keep your cow shit in one place. Right. Yeah. And I mean... So this, so this does really affect everybody, obviously. Um, you know, are your chances of being healthier if you are vegan, you know, is that still a valid point? Yes, of course. Um, because, you know, the, if, if your cow shit isn't on my spinach, uh, I mean, you know, obviously there are way more cases of like, uh, foodborne illnesses in, in meat, E. coli, all that stuff. Um, but, more importantly is you take your healthiest meat diet and you take your healthiest vegan diet. The healthiest vegan diet still cuts your chance of heart disease, most sure, cancers, yeah. diabetes, all that shit in half. I think the point is that we should all be in the fight together to make our food safer. Yeah, because here's the Like pro- whether you're a vegan or not, everybody suffers the consequences of a under-regulated food industry. Yeah, well here, I've never given advice to non-vegans besides go vegan because um, – you're eating animals and I like little animals because they're sweet. Um, but here's also my advice for you guys is we talk about the harm of free market privatization 
all this stuff on the show, right? Where it's like, what's the goal of the free market? Well, you got to make as much money as possible. How do you make as much money as possible? Well, you cut costs and you try to produce as much as you feasibly can uh, every second, right? So the reason that your meat is so fucking disgusting and that there's cow shit in your burgers and that there's pus in your milk and the reason that these cows are given so many fucking antibiotics that their udders are the size of a small car and they have to be picked up and they can't even stand on their own legs. Um, and it's just like pussing with disgusting stuff. The reason that, uh, they have to put cows in rape racks. They actually call it the rape rack and have it, uh, raped by these giant metal tubes so they can produce milk is because they want to, the, the reason that, uh, factory farm workers, have the, you know, some of the highest injury rates and domestic violence rates and stuff like that is because they just want to pump out as much product as possible. And that should concern you. It's the same reason that a lot of our listeners don't shop at Walmart. It's the same reason that a lot of our listeners don't support the health insurance companies or don't support Blackwater. Um, it's because when you privatize <laughs> things. Don't support Blackwater. Well, yeah. Don't answer their fundraising emails. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> Blackwater here, guys. It's that time of year. <laughs> if you want a Blackwater tote bag. Um, you know there would be hipsters like, I do want a Blackwater tote bag. Uh, it's really sad, though. It's just uh, the head of a Muslim person they've killed. Aww. And then you put your money in their mouth. Jamie. Yeah, well, fucking it's not my fault Blackwater kills people. <laughs> so... Um, but you don't support that. So why would you support factory farms? Right. And now a lot of you write in, you say, well, I get my eggs from Jim who lives in my basement with a chicken. And you're like, all right, whatever. That's fine. Um, but most stuff that's labeled organic, most stuff that's labeled, uh, free range or whatever is the same. Uh, they do the same terrible fucking things to animals. They keep these animals in the same horrid fucking living conditions because they have to compete with these factory farms. And, more importantly than that, I don't give a fuck if you buy your eggs from Jim in your basement or from Sally who has the farm next door. Um, 99% of food that you get at restaurants or in stores is factory farm. So that means if you do get your eggs from the local person, you're still – unless you go vegan every time you go out to eat, you're still supporting these factory farms. And so animal rights aside – from a corporation level, I think you guys are better than that. Yes, I agree. And it's everything you stand for. Number three, poultry litter in cow feed. God damn it. Why it's a problem. You know how arsenic goes inorganic and thus poisonous in chickens' guts? Consider that their arsenic-laced manure is then commonly used as a feed for cows. According to Consumers uh, Union, the stuff consists primarily of man- manure, feathers, spilled feed, and bedding material that accumulate on the floors of the buildings that house chickens and turkeys. The spilled feed part is of special concern because chickens are often fed meat and bone meal from dead cattle, CU reported. And that stuff can spill into the litter and be fed back to the cows, raising mad cow disease concerns. So Europe banned all forms of animal protein, including chicken litter and cow feed in 2001. You're sponsored by Europe. (laughs) But in the U.S., the practice remains unrestricted. U.S. cattle consume about 2 billion pounds of it annually, consumer unions Michael Hansen uh, told Mother Jones. So, yeah, obviously this is gross, um, but... I always remember when 
Oprah tried to say on her show, I'm not going to eat meat anymore because this was during like the height of the mad cow scare, mad cow's disease scare. And the fucking beef industry sued Oprah. Yeah. Which is like suing God. It is. So, and I really think that scared a lot of people because like, you know, if you see that the beef industry is going to take down Oprah, it's like, oh man, what if like a smaller author tried to go after the beef industry? Well, and it's not like Oprah said, uh, it, it wasn't you like You guys was, shouldn't eat meat, but with the beef or industry it was like saying, libel or anything, she wasn't saying anything that wasn't true. But it is. There are laws on the books so in the states gay. that if it's considered like, yeah, it's slander against certain industries. If you, if like Oprah says on television, I don't want to eat meat, the beef industry says, well, that's basically telling your viewers not to eat because meat. And you can idea. actually, the beef industry can sue people for saying shit like that. This is why we can never get as big as Oprah. <laughs> Which I don't think is going to be a problem. It's not an issue. Don't worry. Um, number four, chlorine washes for poultry carcasses. Uh, Why it's a problem. Uh, As the U.S. chicken industry has sped up kill lines in recent years, it has resorted to heavier use of chlorine-based washes to decrease my- microbial loads on carcasses. This the is what wa- I was talking about, where it's like getting as much out as possible. Exactly. So that was a report from the Washington Post, um, quoting a previously unreleased USDA document. Um, as Mother Jones has noted, the USDA is preparing to release new rules that would speed up kill lines still more, as well as allow companies to douse every carcass that comes down the line with antimicrobial sprays, whether they are contaminated or not. According to the Post, poultry workers and the USDA inspectors attribute a range of ailments to the practice, including asthma and other severe respiratory problems, burns, rashes, irritated eyes, and sinus ulcers, and other sinus problems. So Europe not only bans the practice, but refuses to accept U.S. poultry that has been treated with antimicrobial sprays. Um, And, of course, the U.S. is preparing... To rule out new rules that will increase the practice. Um, yeah, and I mean, the list goes on, and I'll link to the full Mother Jones article in the uh, the episode recap. But this is what I mean about, like, regardless, you know, if you're a vegan, if you're a vegetarian, if you're a meat eater, this should concern everyone. Well, and I mean, if, even if you are a vegan, it's like you have family members who eat this <laughs> kind of meat. So let's talk about the Food Standards Agency. So in the U.S., the FDA regulates both food but also pharmaceuticals. Uh, Does the FSA also have purview over both of those, or is it food only? That I'm not 100% certain of, but I do know they are focused on food. And I think one of the the most alarming um, aspects of, of what we've seen just in the news in the last several weeks is the fact that Uh, something like 80% of all antibiotics in the world are now used on livestock and in the food supply. Um, This is really something that is a a cause of great concern because 
if, uh, like for example, you're starting to see uh, what we've had here for a number of years, the MRSA superbug is beginning to take off in several of your hospitals. It's something that they've been working very hard to contain and, and for the most part have now gotten the upper hand on. But it is a, it is a, a virus that ends up, uh, you know, being transmitted in the form of a bacteria, excuse me, uh, that, you know, kills half the people that it infects. So you're going to see more of this sort of thing. Drug-resistant strains of tuberculosis now are quite common. Drug-resistant strains of many diseases long, you know, thought uh, uh, taken care of and, and eliminated are coming back onto the scene. So with the with the FDA, we know that they're, the idea that it is some kind of ultimately objective entity that is going to only make decision ba based on the interest of the broad population is not true. On the drug side, we've seen how money can influence the rapidity of, of approval for a variety of drugs. But on the food side, we've seen a number of different things that are concerning. One of them is the approval of uh, food additives, which they say pose certain risks but in small doses are okay and the subjective nature of that and whether a lot of those things are really uh, it allowed in foods because it's big food big big food companies that uh, use those products for preservation or for for reducing cost or what it whatever it may be and also the other idea of hiding a whole bunch of stuff under natural flavors and the the broad a number of things that can fall under natural flavors, which if people knew about would absolutely be concerned. So that's the FDA. Talk a little bit about the FSA and whether those types of problems also exist there. Well, they absolutely do because I mean, you, you have the same competing interests. I mean, whenever I hear about three different areas, big food, big pharma, or big oil, I get quite nervous. Um, there's been a, a book that's come out there in the United States, and I've heard several reports on it now, on the, the uh, amount of salt, fat, and sugar that is being used and the ethical dilemma that it's now placing on these big food manufacturing companies. There was apparently a meeting many years ago where a senior executive, I think it was a general food, stood up and said, you know, we've got to start taking care of the foods that we're producing because we're setting ourselves up in much the same way as big tobacco is uh, or has in the past with nicotine being an addicting sort of uh, force with the amount of sugar, fat, and salt that are put in to get to that ultimate point where people are actually buying their products. And what we've seen happening now is that they're starting to have to pay the piper. There are going to be lawsuits just like you've seen, I think, in, in tobacco now against food companies for things such as obesity because in order to gin up taste and to create a craving for things like fat and sugar and salt, they've, they've been doing what they have to do from a corporate point of view to sell lots of product but they're not been focused on the health aspects of what they've been doing. So it's creating a huge dilemma for them. And the FDA is sort of walking hand in glove with them by not coming down and saying, wait a minute, you've got to be, you know, you, they, they occasionally through either them or the FTC say, well, you can't claim that, you know, Count Chocula or a Frankenberries are, are real fruit. <laughs> that, that doesn't work. But there are going to be more of these issues coming up in the food supply. And it's good that the light is now finally being shown on this because on everything from here to GMOs and Monsanto and Roundup, people are now beginning to be very concerned about what they're ingesting and what the long-term effects are going to be of that. 
So long story short, how, how much trust do people have in the food, uh, in the FSA? Oh, none at all right now. <laughs> okay. It's a, it's a complete disaster, as it should be, because, you know, you've got this situation now where, you know, these are the people who are supposed to be blowing the whistle when these issues come up. Where are they? They've been asleep at the switch. Why don't you, you trust me? Come to me. When things go wrong, cling to me, daddy. Okay, here's a question for you. Is our national habit of eating dead animals dragging us closer and closer to a flu pandemic that could kill tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of Americans? Seriously, I'm not talking about, you know, people getting sick with, uh, you know, uh, too much fat in their diet or cholesterol or something. I'm, I'm talking about eating dead animals leading us to a flu pandemic. Dr. Michael Greger believes so. Up to 60 million Americans get the flu every year. What if it turned deadly? No that the flu is already deadly. Hundreds, sometimes thousands of Americans die every year from the regular seasonal flu, which, by the way, according to the Centers for Disease Control, has a mortality rate of about 2 tenths of one percent point two percent a particularly severe and infectious form of the flu struck the world back in 1918 infecting a third of the global population killed as many as a hundred million people in the united states we lost about a half million americans that was not like the regular seasonal flu with that flu instead of a mortality rate at point two percent the 1918 strand of influenza had a mortality rate of 2.5%. And that was the worst plague in history in terms of numbers of people who had died from a disease. Arguably, as the percentage of the population, the Black Plague outnumbered it. But still, 2.5% mortality killed hundreds of millions of people. But what if a strand of influenza swept across the nation that was 25 times deadlier than the 1918 strand? What if we were dealing with a flu pandemic that had a 60% mortality rate? Six out of ten people. Three out of five people who get it die. Well, here's the frightening news. We already are dealing with a flu like that. An extremely deadly and contagious form of bird flu, H5N1, has already infected people in several countries, including densely populated China and Indonesia, as well as Thailand, Vietnam, and Egypt, among others. Just in 2012, known cases of this H5N1 bird flu in Cambodia killed 90% of the people infected with it. In China, 65% died. In Indonesia, the mortality rate was 83%. And in Laos and Nigeria, the mortality rate was 100%. Every single person who got it died. If the 60 million Americans who get the flu every year suddenly got this particular strand of the flu, H5N1, then upwards of 40 million Americans would die. It would be a disaster on a scale never before seen in this country or any other, other than possibly how Europeans wiped out Native Americans when they first brought the original flu from Europe over to the North American continent. 
And if it spread around the rest of the world, it would make the Black Plague of the 14th century look like the common cold. Here's what Dr. Greger has said about this particular flu. It's like crossing one of the deadliest known human diseases, Ebola, with one of the you know, most contagious known diseases, influenza. Most likely to cause this flu to go viral, as it were. I mean, right now, you can't get the flu. You can't get this particular kind of flu unless you come into direct contact with an infected bird and get its body fluids inside your body. It's almost like AIDS transmission. But this particular type of flu, if it were to go airborne, we're screwed. And what did Dr. Greger say could cause that? Factory farming. He said we should be doing everything we can possibly do to defend ourselves against this apocalyptic pandemic. Yet every day we as a nation continue factory farming and... Every day we're tempting fate. Because the only thing stopping the H5N1 influenza from killing billions of people around the planet is the H5N1 flu itself. Only about 600 people have been infected so far by this flu. Simply because it hasn't yet mutated to a form that can more easily infect humans. Right now it's good at infecting uh, the, the particular viral receptors that coat the trachea or the windpipe of birds. It needs to mutate to better attach to human receptors. But there's evidence that a strain in Indonesia and a strain in Egypt are, are acquiring slowly those mutations. In fact, in Indonesia last year, it was 100% mortality. Every person that got the H5N1 bird flu died. So jamming birds together in factory farm slaughterhouses and pumping them up with antibiotics promotes these mutations. Now that local small family farm and local supermarket butchers have been replaced by giant transnational corporation slaughterhouses, we've seen a radical and rapid increase in mutant strains of the flu, along with other diseases that come from factory farms like the newly mutated and now deadly forms of E. coli and salmonella. We've domesticated birds for thousands of years. It's really just been in the last few years where we've seen this unprecedented emergence of these highly pathogenic strains which have killed hundreds of millions of birds. And it's thought that is the, you know, when we cram tens of thousands of animals in these cramped, filthy football field sheds to lie beak to beak or snout to snout atop their own waist, it's kind of a perfect storm environment for the emergence and spread of these so-called super strains of influenza. Now, in addition, there are other consequences of factory farming that we know about. Our national diet has more meat in it than ever before, which is accelerating our rates of heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and other illnesses that are responsible for increasing health care costs. And factory farms require enormous amounts of food and water. According to a report by the World Bank's uh, Group International Finance Corporation, 51% of all greenhouse gas emissions are the direct or indirect result of giant factory farms raising cattle, pigs, and poultry. That's pretty mind-boggling. In other words, factory farming is hurtling our planet toward catastrophic climate change. But so far, these reasons haven't been strong enough to really motivate us to change. Americans and policymakers haven't been ready to move away from the factory farm model to bring back local farming and reform our diet by eating fewer dead animals. But if nothing else... The fear of a worldwide pandemic that kills more than half the human race should motivate us to change how we farm and how we eat. Let's hope.
Because whatever joy we as a nation get out of eating chicken wings will be far outweighed by the catastrophe of watching millions of our fellow humans die. Talk about revenge of the birds. To save the human race, we need to end factory farming now. Now, we know the factory farming of cows and pigs has led to these the the H uh, I think it's H157 variety of E. coli. E. coli is a normal intestinal bacteria that everybody has, but this particular variation causes kidney failure and kills people, kills Americans every year. Listeria is a is a, another microbe that can live in your gut that has been around for you know centuries. And only recently has mutated into a form that's like really, really snotty deadly, terribly deadly. And is and kills people, kills Americans. And both of them were pretty sure mutated on factory farms. In fact, the original flu epidemic of nineteen eighteen started on a factory farm in Kansas. And soldiers who were in Kansas preparing, you know, going through basic training and preparing to, to muster out to World War One carried that flu into Europe where it became known as the Spanish flu because they spread it to large populations in the middle of the war and then they brought it back home and and boom we had this flu epidemic and millions of people died so when are we going to start talking about the damage that factory farms do not just to our environment not just to our food supply As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Sometimes the cost of winning is so great that you really lose. This little lesson seems to be dawning on several food industry powers. Such huge processors and retailers as ConAgra, PepsiCo, Unilever, and Walmart dumped millions of dollars into last November's monumental labeling battle over California's Proposition 37, which would have required corporations to tell consumers if any of their food products contain ingredients with genetically manipulated DNA. Using piles of political cash, deceptive advertising, and outright lies, the corporate Goliaths squeaked out a narrow victory over a scrappy coalition of consumers, environmentalists, organic producers, and others. But while big money won the election, the corporations lost the hearts and minds of their own customers, for they exposed themselves as greedheads, going to extremes to deny people's right to know what they're putting into their own bodies and into their children's bodies. That's not a winning proposition over the long haul, no matter how much political money they throw at it. 
Moreover, far from feeling defeated, the pro-labeling coalition was energized by having flushed out of hiding the big brand names that are secretly putting GMO contaminants in our food supply. Having awakened public consciousness, the grassroots coalition has flummoxed the genetic manipulators by not going away. Instead, it has already expanded the political fight for honesty and food purity into Connecticut, Missouri, New Mexico, Vermont, and Washington State. This is Jim Hightower saying, and now the strength of the issue and tenacity of the coalition has pushed a couple of dozen major food peddlers, including PepsiCo and Walmart, to begin talking about switching sides and supporting a national labeling law. To keep up and help push, go to www.organicconsumers.org. What it was that frightened us so Come on, let's stick a little label on it Give it a name So everything can go on just the same Stick a little label on it No one will General Mills pulls nitroglycerin checks from stores. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Following a series of violent explosions at numerous supermarket outlets, General Mills announced today that it's recalling nitroglycerin checks, the first cereal created by a joint effort between the U.S. Defense Department and a major breakfast cereal manufacturer. We now go live to cereal removal squad leader Nathan Garad. Doyle, tension is very high here. One mistake with a single box can cause a massive explosion. We will try to reestablish that connection soon. Uh, this is the latest in a series of breakfast cereal recalls, only two weeks after Kellogg's discontinuation of Razor Brand. Doyle Redlin for the Onion Radio News online. Michael Moss is the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter at the New York Times. He is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Sugar, Salt, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. Michael, really a pleasure to talk to you. And there's just so much in your book that I was uh, very interested in. And I, I picked out a few things that I think might be interesting to focus on today. One that Great. I want to talk about is... When companies like Kraft and, and a lot of these other players that we're very familiar with in the processed food industry started to see study after study linking the uh, uh, sugar, salt, and fat-laden foods clearly to obesity, how did they react? Well, within these largest companies, there are actually, and this surprised me, cabals of insiders who became increasingly alarmed not just from like a social policy standpoint, but also just from fear of losing the public trust. And early on in my research for the book, I came across this extraordinary meeting 
Way back in 1999, these insiders brought together the CEOs of some of the largest manufacturers in North America to talk about none other than the emerging obesity, diabetes, etc. epidemic. Um, and they stood up before these CEOs and made this incredible pitch. A senior official from Kraft gets up and armed with 114 slides, lays at their feet responsibility for the obesity crisis and, and even links their foods with several cancers and pleads with them to do the right thing by consumers. And what was the reaction to that pleading? You know, from his perspective, the meeting was an utter failure. I mean, he even went so far as to warn them that the lawyers who went after big tobacco, it wasn't just a matter of if but when they were going to come after big food with the same arguments, that there are health effects from overconsumption of salt, sugar, fat, that the industry's over-reliance on these ingredients has contributed to the epidemic, and that the lawyers will come after that, if nothing else, to recover some of the public health care costs associated with obesity. The CEOs reacted defensively. They said, look, we already offer consumers of choice. We have in the grocery store products versions of our mainline products that are low-fat, low-sugar, have added grains. We do respond to the consumers, but we're also beholden to shareholders. We must keep our prices low. We must make our food tasty in order to sell product. And which, which is basically a reaction that says, while we may understand the connection between our products and the diseases you're talking about, we also have a responsibility to shareholders, which pushes back against the social responsibility you're talking about. I mean, is that not essentially what, what that answer means? Yeah, I mean, I think there's essentially, too, also just a certain amount of denial when, when inside these companies. I spent time with the former president of Coca-Cola for North America, South America. And at one time, you know, at point he said to me, look, Michael, you know, and by the way, he is now out there selling fresh carrots, doing what he calls karmic debt for the 20 years. He was one of Coke's fiercest warriors. And he said to me, look, Michael, you know, when you're inside the company in your day-to-day -day battle with competitors, in their case, Pepsi, you're just not sort of seeing the big picture, not wanting to see the big picture. So it's not as if these companies and their employees are evil empires intentionally setting out to, to get us overweight or otherwise ill. There are companies doing what companies do, which is make as much money as possible by selling as much product as possible. Talk a little bit about the bliss point. In the book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, you talk about the bliss point, and I think that that's a concept that would be interesting to our audience. I was really stunned at the amount of science, uh, they call it engineering, that goes into creating new foods. Bliss point is the term that the industry came up with to describe the perfect formula of sweetness in foods that would send us over the moon, guarantee high sales for them. A legend in the industry named Howard Moskowitz, trained in high math experimental psychology at Harvard, walked me through his recent creation of a new soda flavor for Dr. Pepper. And to achieve the bliss point, the perfect sort of formulation, he started with 61 different formulations of sweetness, each one just slightly different than the other, subjected those to 3,000 consumer taste tests, threw the data into his computer, did his high math regression analysis thing, and came up with a very perfect formula that would wow us and guarantee the company a hit. 
And when you and, say, when you say, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, yeah. No, I was just going to say, and what's fascinating about sugar is that we don't have an endless desire for sugar. Anybody who drinks coffee and likes it sweet can do the experiment themselves. Just keep adding sugar till you get to the point where you really like it. Keep adding more, and you know, eventually you'll go, yuck, this is awful. So the bliss point typically is is calculated. The data is on a chart that looks like a bell-shaped curve. We're at the very top of the of the curve, not too little, not too much, is the perfect amount of sugar sweetness. So before we talk a little about the implications of that kind of uh, food engineering, the other fascinating thing in the book, uh, of many, is your salt story, right? This story about, well, when you look at the back of a can of soup or whatever it is, I'm always shocked by the amount of sodium that it has. And I say, why couldn't they just make the same product but just put less salt in it? It'll be healthier, and will people really miss it if it's salty and not incredibly salty? But you actually know about why that doesn't work. I had the exact same question, and the answer is basically they are more hooked on salt than we are. And to demonstrate that, for me, some of the largest companies, Kraft, Campbell Soup, and especially Kellogg made for me some of their icons without salt added. I went to Battle Creek, Michigan, research and development headquarters of Kellogg, and started tasting some of these icons with their people. And I have to tell you, it was the most god-awful experience I ever had. We started with the Cheez-Its crackers, which normally I could eat all day long. These we couldn't even swallow. They stuck to the roof of our mouth without salt. They lacked texture, solubility. The frozen waffles were even worse. We popped them in the toaster. They came out looking and tasting like straw. <laughs> and the clincher was the cornflakes. Put it in, you know, we put some, put in the bowl with some milk and taste. And before it could say anything, the chief spokeswoman for the company got this look of a horror on her face and she swallowed and blurted out the word metal <laughs> m-e-t-a-l she i taste metal and the chief scientist is sitting there going yeah well that's one of the beauties of salt for us is that it will mask some of the off notes the bad flavors that can creep into some food processing so, th so is that really the source of this michael which is in, in everyday cooking, if you're using kind of whole ingredients, you don't need salt to cover the fact that the ingredients have been processed. Is that what, really why the salt is there? It's not to, as a preservative as we often hear. Well, in fact, being a preservative is the other thing that it's incredibly useful to, too. It's that when you cook for yourself, you don't need it. It doesn't have to sit in your refrigerator for two months at a right. time. I talked to a meat maker who actually has really low sodium salt in their products. I said, why? And they go, well, well actually, because we make our meat for the deli counter, not the, you know, not the grocery store aisle. So it has a, you know, seven day lifespan. So yeah, preservative. The other you know, incredible, brilliant thing about salt to the industry, it's really low cost. 10 cents a pound. They can use it to avoid using more costly ingredients like fresh herbs and spices. Last thing, and we don't have too much time here, which I'm, I'm curious to get your take on, is have using have, has the consumption of these processed foods, which have so much salt and these uh, finely tuned uh, bliss points of sugar, has this kind of changed the standard of people's palates and how normal food is judged such that it's completely skewing our perception of what food is? Oh, absolutely. And scientists, even within the food industry, are alarmed at the way, for example, sweetness has become, has migrated through the grocery store, out of the dessert aisle, through the rest of the store, 
and is teaching kids to expect sweetness in almost everything. Bread is now sweet. You know, yogurt can have as much sugar in it as ice cream. Pasta sauces can have the equivalent of a couple of Oreo cookies in a half cup serving of pasta sauce. And that sort of, especially with sugar, but also fat and salt, sort of the, the extent to which the processed food industry has helped shape our desire for and our expectation for large amounts of these three ingredients is part of the issue that the public health system is now struggling with. Well, the book, once again, is Sugar, Salt, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. We've been speaking with the book's author, Michael Moss. Really great to have you on. Fascinating. I, I encourage our audience to check out the book. Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. And even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in Moments of Clarity. Free at LeeCamp.net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. Moment of Clarity, number 221 from LeeCamp.net. The way our system works is that when something becomes successful, large corporations then move in, buy it up, molest it, beat it, mangle it, and then push the remaining pile of mess out onto the people. And then they say, see, this is that thing you loved, remember? Remember you love this thing? Yay! Give us money. For example, a lot of people I know who have some empathy in their bodies only buy free-range eggs at the grocery store because regular eggs, a.k.a. imprisoned eggs, produced by convict chickens who haven't even been given a trial or charges, nowadays are made on factory farms where the chickens literally, literally live their entire lives in a space the size of a piece of paper, in a pen with dozens of other chickens. Granted, sometimes that's how my apartment here in New York feels, but my chickens are fairly well behaved. And you know that once corporations, factory farms and the such realize how much money there is to be made in free-range, vegetarian-fed, happy, natural chicken eggs, you know they're going to want some of that action. But they won't be able to simply do it like everybody else and open small farms and start selling eggs from blissful hens playing hopscotch all day. No, they'll want to be able to create a million free-range eggs right now, all at once. So then they'll start marching a million chickens around, threatening to zap them with electric prods if they don't march in line properly. You each get ten minutes of free-ranging per day. Get to work. I want to see you marching in a free manner, all right, with smiles on your face, not sarcastic smiles. I saw that. And a lot of the free-range eggs I've seen are produced by the Amish. So then the corporations will have to force thousands of Amish to raise hens for them. Come on, you bearded barn-raising... Get to work. I need 8 million free-range smiling chicken eggs by tomorrow, so get on it. And or else I start whacking chickens left and right. And you can tell them I said that. Abraham, Jebediah, don't be afraid to squeeze them.
But until then, look into what you're eating. Avoid products that result from animal cruelty. If for no other reason, do it because when the zombie apocalypse comes, the zombie chickens are gonna hate you. No one ever mentions the zombie chickens, do they? No, because it's too scary to even think about. Hey, Jay, this is Flavio in Orlando. Um, I'm a little bit behind on your podcast. I just now got finished listening to part one of the uh, LGBTQ rights episode that uh, came out just recently. And I'm actually calling in response to uh, something you had mentioned towards uh, at the end of the, uh, the podcast about Tim Cedar's um, piece on, on the, uh, the Boston uh, attacks and how he connected it to, to uh, Iraq and uh, the, the hundreds of, of, of people that die monthly, I think, uh, in Iraq from, from, from bombs and, and whatnot. And, uh, and you had mentioned how um, well, you, you had played the, uh, the voicemail of, of, a, of a lady um, who, who had a disagreement with, the, um, with, you, with, uh, with Sam Cedar's response. It's pissing me off that I'm getting reamed out for being upset that the day this many people got hurt in my city. I'm a third-generation Bostonian. I am not allowed to be offended that people are just throwing out numbers about other countries that we chose to go into when we're attacked by some angry psychopath. And I just want to say, I am completely in agreement with you and Sam Cedar. In fact, I am a member of the Sam Cedar Majority Report, and when he, I had already heard that clip when, uh, when you know, by the time I heard it, heard, heard it on your show, I had already put it on Sam Cedar's show, and uh, I was so grateful. I remember listening to, to him that, that particular day, listening to the podcast, thinking, this is amazing. I'm so glad that he's voicing and speaking this, this opinion, because it's frankly something that doesn't really get brought up a lot. Um, in fact, it's rarely brought up. And I think it's an important point. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the lady who left the voicemail, um, she mentioned something that you didn't, you didn't mention when you were speaking about it, which is that she made, you know, she, she said, well, I wouldn't randomly bring up events in Africa, the people dying from malaria. And why are we talking even about Afghanistan or Iraq? I mean, nobody said, oh, this many people died of AIDS in Africa today. I mean, let's get a global perspective. If you want to look at third world nations, let's look at all of them. How many people died of malaria that day? You know, implying that there was no connection between what Sam Cedar said and, and what, you know, the tragedy in Boston. And uh, I completely disagree with that. I think you could make a real good argument, a real good case for the connection between what happened and what, 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 you know, we, we are directly responsible for the, the conditions that Iraq is in right now. That place is a mess. And, uh, and, and, and frankly, you know, and on some level, I know it's kind of controversial, but on some level, this is in no way excusing, uh, the actions of the Boston bombers, but we should think about this a bit and, 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 and consider that we might have some responsibility, uh, in fact, in what happened in the Boston Marathon, because, Actions have consequences, and it's in no way excusing what happened, but we, we really need to start thinking about the actions and the consequences that our actions are having all around the Muslim world. I believe that the surviving uh, uh, Boston bomber left a note or, or a writing on the boat that he was founded where he explicitly mentions that, you know, they did this because of our actions in Iraq. Um, I, I, you know, so... Now, again, it's no way uh, uh, excusing their behavior, 
and, and, and of course, you know, we, we need to per, per, persecute that guy to, to the full extent of the law. But, you know, I think Sam Cedar's point is, is quite valid. That's the reason why I like his show so much. And frankly, I think he's the best progressive voice out there right now. So anyway, I just wanted to call in and, and give support to what you were saying and Sam Cedar. And uh, frankly, I think we need more of it. And we, we actually see this a lot, too, when uh, there's gun attacks. And people immediately say, well, no, you can't bring up... Uh, you know, gun laws, you can't bring up talking, it's too soon, it's too soon. But no, it's not too soon. These things need to be put up at the moment that they're happening because that's, that's when they're being discussed and that's when it's most uh, relevant, in my opinion. So anyway, uh, keep up the great show. Listen to every single one of them and I love what you do. I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye-bye. A quick note of clarification on this message. After producing the previous episode in which I commented on uh, Rachel from Boston's voicemail, I I then actually realized that although my comments focused almost entirely on a clip uh, I played from the majority report from Sam Cedar that this uh, caller we just heard was referring to, that Rachel from Boston, although the comments she was making were very, very, very reminiscent of everything that Sam had been saying, that she actually didn't refer to that clip specifically by name, and, and she was actually referring to comments that were being made by, you know, mostly anonymous people on Twitter. And so there may have been some, you know, cross communication, you know, miscommunication there where, you know, people on Twitter certainly, <laughs> I would imagine, were less eloquent and less thoughtful than Sam was. And so I just wanted to put out that clarification that uh, in my response to her wasn't exactly on point because I was referring to something that was very similar, but not exactly what she was referring to. Hi, Jay. This is Allison from Erie, Colorado. I just wanted to say that I totally agree with what Wade said about the prison system. Hey, Jay, it's Wade from Texas. These guys, they go to prison, and now they're convicted felons, and now they got to check a damn box every time they fill out a job application. To me, every sentence turns into a life sentence when you have to check that box. And that... We really definitely need to overhaul how we handle criminals and how we handle, well, prisoners and how we handle people after they get out, too. And we need to do that for the mental health system as well. Anyways, um, I love the show. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I have an update to the podcast patent troll discussion that I started in the last episode. It's not really a discussion. It's just I'm letting you know what's going on. There's a, a person out there who says that they own a patent on the concept of podcasting, and so they're not only uh, threatening litigation and, and you know asking for licensing fees from big companies, but they're also going after end users, individual podcasters, uh, which is I don't know seems to be the the wave of the future for uh, you know patent holders trying to make money. So 
so that's going on right now. There is a campaign going on with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I'll link to that in the show notes again so you can uh, check on the details of that and help fight back both with uh, donations to help with the basically legal filing fees to try to fight uh, this this patent war uh, on behalf of podcasters against this patent holder. And then also they are looking for evidence to uh, basically say that this patent holder didn't really invent what they invented because essentially what they're saying is they invented the concept of subscribing to something, you know, as if subscribing to newspapers hadn't been around for hundreds of years and having media automatically delivered to them. They said, well, we've been subscribing to things for hundreds of years, so, you know, maybe people would subscribe to this too. Let's say that we invented that idea. So the update is that I happened to be in New York for a couple of business-related meetings over this past weekend, and uh, and, and a lot of stuff happened. Uh, first of all, Planet Money, uh, the podcast, which is a partnership between NPR and This American Life, did an episode on this exact issue, the, the podcast Patent Troll. And then also on Sunday, This American Life itself did a whole episode on patents in general and specifically mentioning you know the the uh, the podcasting element of that and so you'd think like okay that's a big update well timed you know i just mentioned this issue in the previous episode a lot happened over the weekend uh, but not only that because i happened to be in new york uh, for totally unrelated reasons i i then found out that mike berbiglia was doing a show at carnegie hall and i have a habit of making awkward situations even more awkward <laughs> I always give this example, but a few years ago, I was moving a new bed into my apartment, and this woman who lived in the building opened the front door for me with her key, right? And she said, I'm not worried because a rapist wouldn't have a bed like that. <laughs> That's how she started the conversation. Now, what I should have said was nothing. <laughs> What I did say was you'd be surprised. And there's nothing you can say after that. It was like, see you around the building, you know, that kind of thing. So I thought, well, you know, hey, like, I'm going to be there anyways. Let's squeeze in a show uh, of Michael Biglia. Now, no, what's the connection there? He's just a comedian. But Michael Biglia was a regular or and sort of is still a regular guest on This American Life. So just by coincidence, Ira Glass, host of This American Life, was at that show as well. He was part of the show, and I didn't think much of it. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll see him on stage. He'll do, you know, to probably tell a story because that's the sort of thing he does, and that'd be that. But then, because it was Mike Birbiglia's last show of the this run of shows he's been doing, it was at Carnegie Hall's a big deal. Um, so to sort of celebrate the the end of, of the run of his one man show. It turns out they were giving away ice cream to all of the people who attended the show. So uh, Mike and Ira and then two dancers who also, you know, helped tell the story uh, along with Ira Glass on stage. The, the four of them were giving away ice cream on the sidewalk outside the theater. And but still, because I had to catch a train, I thought I wasn't even going to get a chance to get the ice cream anyways. Got to go, you know, in a hurry. And so, so it still didn't occur to me that I would, you know, meet any of them or do anything like that. And uh, 
And so then I, you know, I go, I pick up my suitcase where I had left it, you know, during the show, and I come back and I realize, you know what? I do have time. I'm going to swing by. I'm going to get myself some free ice cream. It's going to be great. Perfect way to end uh, the trip to New York. And, uh, and and so I'm there. I get some ice cream from uh, you know one of the dancers there serves the ice cream and Ira. Uh, glass from this american life is standing there taking pictures with people and i think yeah like hey i'll take a picture but this whole time i'm in like mike berbiglia fan mode and you know just went to the theater mode i wasn't really in podcaster mode or anything like that and so you know because so i was there he's taking pictures with lots of people he's just you know he's saying hi but he's also serving ice cream he's, he's very busy and so i think like ah oh, you know i'm not uh, you know, whatever, like I took a picture with him, not a big deal. And I won't bother like wasting his time. And then the moment I walk away, I realize, and, and by that time, like I really did have to go. And then I realized, wait, I actually had an incredibly timely and uh, relevant piece of information to pass along to Ira Glass. Had I had the wherewithal to do so, I could have, hey, as a podcaster who's very much involved in the patent issue that you just did a show about, I'm looking forward to hearing the show. You know, I, I hadn't had a chance to hear it yet. It only it came out the same day, you know, that evening, I guess. So I hadn't heard it yet, but I knew it was coming. And I could have said that, and I didn't. Uh, so I didn't hear his response or, or what his thoughts on the patent issue were. But the point is... This American Life just did an episode on the patent issue, as did Planet Money, and I, I would you know, be remiss if I didn't mention uh, in the same breath that they also did a, a really good, really interesting episode on climate change recently. It's, it's yeah, definitely check out This American Life uh, this week. Episodes on, uh, I, I have now since heard the episode on the patent issue. It was very good, and, uh, and, and as I said, the issue on climate change uh, couple of weeks ago was also excellent so go back in their archives and find that one as well and as i said for details on the campaign surrounding the patent issue i'm putting the link in the show notes so you can find it there but also if you just google eff or electronic frontier foundation and podcast troll or save podcasting something like that you will find the page and find all the ways that you can help um, this is actually a pretty critical thing that you know we, re we really do need to fix the structure of, of how patents work and win this case so that this uh, this patent holder doesn't go and actually put a bunch of podcasters out of business, whether they mean to or not. That That is absolutely the, the danger they are posing to the podcasting community. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you're not already subscribed to the show to make sure you get every single episode, please do that. There's lots of ways, uh, either through iTunes, which is very popular, the standard RSS feed, which you can use in any podcatching software. Uh, and what people are really leaning towards now these days is uh, smartphone apps. Uh, people love Stitcher. And then, of course, there's actually a Best of Left app made specifically for the show. So you can check that out. It's made for both iPhone and Android. Uh, but thanks especially and also to those who support the show directly by becoming a member, making one-time donations. And of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. 
Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fond farewell to a friend